In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbV, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, on your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. I'm Damian Lillard, and you're listening to From the Rose Garden on the Athletic Podcast Network. Rip City! Both teams play hard. Both teams play hard. Both teams play hard. Hello and welcome to a special crossover episode of Basketball Reasons. It is Basketball Reasons and from the Rose Garden. I'm joined today by Portland Trailblazers beat writer Jason Quick. Jason, how are things from the Rose Garden? Things are well, Bill. <laughs> well, we finally got this project done, Bill. We did. We did. We've only been talking about it since uh, what July, I think. Yeah, July in Vegas at Summer League. You had Same. this idea, and I have to commend you because you were really uh, persistent on this. When I my interest was kind of waning, you were you were a dog on it and kept at it, and we finally got it done. So the project, for those who um, are, are unaware, was an oral history of Game 7 of the 2000 Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Trailblazers, a, um, an incredibly painful memory for Blazers fans and, um, and uh, a triumphant one for Lakers uh, fans and, and people with that organization. Obviously, the Lakers go on to win three championships, and the Trailblazers um, still, still to this day looking to get back to that point. They were 12 minutes away from the NBA finals and certainly haven't been that close since. Um, Jason, what um, you were covering the team then. What was the, um, what is the legacy of that game? Do you think? And, and I know we've talked during the reporting process that, that there was, there are a lot of people who don't like to revisit it because it's such a painful memory. What, what is the, the memory of that game like for Blazers fans and in that organization? It's almost taboo to talk about. Um, people really don't like to, to revisit it. And, you know, even after we published uh, the story, you have some people saying, you know, hey, this is too soon. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was really difficult because uh, that was a really good team. And, and everyone in Portland thinks they would have beat Indiana and, and won a title. And I, I think the way it unraveled was just so stunning. I mean, 15 point lead with 10, 10 minutes left with a team just loaded with talent. I mean, Sabonis, Pippen, Steve Smith, Bonzi Wells, uh, Damon Stoudemire, Brian Grant. That's, you just don't see that big of a implosion. Um, 
on that stage very often. And I think that's why it resonates not only with Blazers and Lakers fans, but with NBA fans, there's a lot of people who remember that game. Um, so it, it definitely lives in infamy in, in Portland and it, it's not something that people like to talk about. And, you know, just in the course of reporting, it was difficult to get guys to talk about it. Um, you know, Damon Stoudemire, uh, said he just didn't want to talk. I don't know if it was, necessarily just because it was game seven. Um, but he just, he declined an interview. Steve Smith tried reaching out to him. Uh, couldn't get him. So I still think it, it sticks with these players and, you know, talking to Jermaine O'Neal and, and Brian Grant and Mike Dunleavy and Bob Whitsett, it, it clearly still sticks with them as well. Well, and I, I, you mentioned Bob Whitsett, who was the architect of that team, famously the, the, the general manager who said, as things were starting to unravel, said he wasn't a, a chemistry major. Yeah, um, that was the next year. Yeah, right, right. After, yeah. As that team started to implode. But the quote that we start the story off from Bob Whitsett, and again, this is the 20th anniversary of that game, June 4th, 2000. It's still a gut-wrenching loss. I still feel terrible. Yeah. And, and listen, it, it is – Bob Whitsett was the general manager of the, the Blazers for – Jason, 15 years, close to it, a dozen years. Yeah. Um, he was the general manager of the Seattle Seahawks. I think that we can safely say that this is the defining moment. And that was the defining team of his career as a sports executive. Well, he, he had some team in Seattle that went to the NBA. Finals. See the G yeah. Oh, that's he, true. He, yeah. With the he drafted yeah. Sean Kemp and Greg, Gary Payton and all that. So uh, I would say probably those Sonic ones, but cer certainly in Portland and working for Paul Allen, um, you know, that was, he, he did a great job getting that team. I mean, you forget that the year prior, the Blazers made the Western conference finals and were swept. And, you know, there's a lot of people who say, why do you, why did you tinker with that team that lost to the Lakers? And he's like, well, you forget the, the year before I tinkered with the team that went to the Western Conference Finals and I traded for Steve Smith. I traded for Scottie Pippen. I signed Detlef Shrimp to a free agency. And that, that worked. You know, it's just that the two moves he made after the loss to the Lakers in Game 7 didn't work. So that's what people always kind of um, blame him or criticize him for tinkering with that team when, you know, his response is, I tinkered with the year prior that went to the Western conference finals and it worked. So that, that's just kind of one of the undertones I think in the story that I hope people get is that there's a delicate balance in, in building a championship team. Uh, and you got to get a lot of people on the same page and uh, a lot of things have to go in your favor. And I think uh, for the Lakers, as a, a couple people uh, said, you know, if, if the Lakers would have lost that game, I don't know if that there's a, if they would have bounced back and won the two other titles, just because when you lose, you feel like you have to make adjustments. Yeah. And that, and that's a point Rick Fox made John black, the longtime VP of public relations, Gary Vitti, the longtime trainer, um, Mitch Kupchak, who was the general manager at the time. Obviously, the next year, the Lakers have, you know, one of the best Lakers teams in history. They go 15 and one in the playoffs. And so there's an attitude. Well, if they don't win in 2000, the 2001 team was such a juggernaut. They would have at least gotten that one. And then maybe in 2002, you know, you need Robert Ori to hit that three in Sacramento. That was another stroke of luck. But you at least would have had 2001. But Rick Fox said, and I think he, 
I don't think there's much arguing here. They would have, they would have rearranged the pieces around Shaq and Kobe at minimum in 2000, 2001. And so the thing that the 2001 team carried with them was having been through game seven against Portland, a final series against the Pacers. That was a team that had been through something together in 2001. If you had, um, broken up the, the supporting cast of that team and started over, you wouldn't have that experience to lean on. I don't think you can say safely that 2001 would have played out the same way that it, yeah. that it did. You would have had a Portland team that would have be coming off a championship was coming back looking for more, a San Antonio team that was still on the, was still, you know, uh, a contender yeah. and, and yeah. Sacramento, the Lakers in 2000, 2001, instead of being, you know, the favorite and the defending champion would have been one of the teams in the mix. And I think that really changes things. So, Mitch Kupchak said, you know, the, the, the next decade could have been different. Um, Bob, Bob Costas wondered if the, if the, the issues between Shaq and Kobe would have come to a head sooner if they didn't totally. have that, that first t- title to lean back on. And so while, you know, and this has been a year where we've reflected a lot on the Kobe and Shaq relationship and obviously Kobe Bryant's history with the Lakers, given his tragic death in, in January. But this is one question where, you know, and even there was even a comment on, on the story early this morning saying, when are you going to write about the game that really changed history, which was um, in, in game seven in 2002, when the Lakers, when the Lakers ma- made their third straight finals. And I mean, certainly, I mean, obviously a massively consequential game in the history of both those franchises and, and, and everything else, but you may not even get to that game and to that, to that moment in history without, without game seven in 2000, which again, you know, we, we are upon the 20th anniversary, which is the other reason we wrote about that game and chose that game to write about now instead of, instead of something else. But for both teams, I mean, it just completely sent them on these divergent paths and you can, you have the Lakers that, you know, now lean on the fact that they have five championships in this, in this century and the Blazers, which haven't, who haven't been back to that level and only last year made it back to the conference finals for the first time. Yeah. To me, that's, that's the most interesting thing about this story is looking back and seeing how it was really a crossroads for you or not a crossroads, but you can really see, as you say, the, the divergent paths that they took from that game. And, and I really think that had that fourth quarter gone the other way, I think it's totally conceivable that, that the Lakers go uh, down the path that, that Portland went on. I, I, when you lose a big game like that, and keep in mind, they had a three, one lead yep. that would have been gone down as, as the opening quote, the first quote, you know, the headlines would have been Lakers collapse with Phil Jackson, who they just hired. I think when you have that big a loss, it causes you to, to kind of uh, self-analyze and, and reflect and change. I, I think that there's really a lot of pressure on you to change if you lose a big game like that. And, you know, who knows if Kobe and Shaq, if they're kind of bickering back and forth would have been amplified after uh, a big loss like that. Like, well, it's, he had the ball in his hands. Well, he didn't do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's feasible to, to say that the, the Lakers could have, uh, broke up. So that to me is what is so interesting about the game that quarter and and looking at what happened to both those franchises after. 
Yeah. And, and Jason, I just I, I think I, I think to to do this conversation justice, I have to I have to rewind a little bit to something you said earlier about when you when you said that I kind of pushed this project and it was a passion project for me, even when I you know, you weren't feeling it as much. And and the reason it was a passion project for me and I'm, I, I don't mind I don't mind saying this. There was a time in my career where I was I was uncomfortable with it. But um, the reason I care about this story is that when I was a teenager, um, I grew up in Oregon and you know, the blazers were life, especially in the, in the late nineties, you know, as they were on the championship trail. Um, I followed this game, not as a, as a reporter or an, an objective observer as I am now, but as a fan of that team. And I really cared deeply about, you know, these personalities and, and, and whether the Lakers were, or the, excuse me, the Blazers were going to get over the hump. And, and you were the, you were, you were on the beat at the time, you know, in high school, I read your work religiously. And I've said many times that your, your, um, coverage of the Blazers, uh, was really influential on me and helped, um, get me into this business. And so one, my passion for that team, which was, I mean, probably the, um, the most significant moment of my life as a, as a sports fan, um, and, and then also the opportunity to work with you on this story was really meaningful to me. And so, um, one, I just want to say thank you for taking it on with me and seeing it through. And then, uh, then two, also just thank you for the coverage over the years and the, and kind of the, um, the, the guidance you unknowingly gave me in my career. Oh, well, thank you, William. You're making me feel old though. I know that tends <laughs> to happen. Um, but you know, but I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I have a, kind of a funny side story about covering that game. Uh, at the time I, I wasn't the lead beat writer. I was just kind of on the sure. playoff coverage team and I was kind of a takeout writer. For instance, before the Western conference finals started, uh, I had an a one feature on Shaquille O'Neal, you know, so I was kind of like the feature guy. So during the fourth quarter, the blazers are up 15 and my editor is on the phone with me and he's going, Okay, Blazers are going to the NBA Finals. Before game one, we want a Rashid Wallace to take out, go to Philadelphia, and because that's where Rashid's from. Mm -hmm. uh, and so during the entire fourth quarter, I missed a lot of the game. I mean, I was, I was there in my press seat, but I was on the phone with the travel agent booking flights to Philadelphia and <laughs> booking hotels and all that and trying to figure out, okay, am I going to leave straight from LA or am I going to go back to Portland and then go to Philadelphia? And we're doing all this. And so the play by play doesn't stick out to me. The big plays don't stick out to me because I was trying to orchestrate how I was going to get to Philadelphia to do a Rashid Wallace takeout. Um, and then it was, you know, you kind of look and go, Oh man, it's, it's six now. It's eight. Now it's, it's six. Three. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, really interesting for me. Um, in kind of going back and, and watching, rewatching the game or the fourth quarter, it was like, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Um, but of course I remember the, the Kobe Shack uh, mm -hmm. lob and all that. Last Dance documentary has brought up the ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is LeBron the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure is that Manscaped is the GOAT for men's grooming. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. Because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags will be reduced while designing your own triangle offense down under. 
The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with a new and improved lawnmower 3.0 water resistant cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when you're done quarantining. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with the free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code, all one word, THEATHLETIC. I think one thing that both of us really liked out of this story was the Brian Shaw element yeah. and, and how unique that was. Uh, you were kind of the first to, to uncover this, but to tell about the, the process and what you found out about Brian becoming a Laker. Well, it's funny because again, like, you know, 13, 14 year old nerd bill just you know, cared so much about every single player transaction that the Blazers had. And I remember in, in 99, they brought Brian Shaw on, um, and, and, and signed him. And I wasn't old enough to really remember Brian, you know, with, with those, with those magic teams or with the heat. And so he was a little bit of an, a, an unknown to me at that point. And I remember asking a teacher of mine who was a big Blazers fan, um, also how, um, you know, who he was and, and, you know, whether he was going to help. And he's like, ah, oh, he's kind of a journeyman they're bringing in just to kind of, um, you know, shore up the bench. He probably won't play. And, and listen, Brian was re- recovering from, I think a meniscus injury. Um, he was, um, he was in his early thirties. He was on the injury reserve. Blazer signed him to a couple of 10 days. He played five minutes for Portland. And, and then that was more or less it. But when I asked Brian about what the dynamic was like playing against the Blazers, the team he had been with the year before, a team that had made it to the conference finals and did not, um, you know, did not make the finals. He was, he was um, like, well, let me back up and tell you the whole story. And basically the, the story is that, so in the summer of 99, the Blazers are trying to put together a trade for Scottie Pippen and the Blazers still have Brian Shaw's rights. He's not signed to a contract, but the way he tells it, Mark Workentine, who was the assistant GM at the time and has, you know, is a very well-established um, NBA executive figure, um, calls him up and says, hey, I've got the deal of a lifetime for you. We're trying to get Scottie Pippen. It's going to be a six-for-one deal, but we need an extra contract to make the deal work. And we are going to sign you to a one-year veteran minimum contract to make the deal, to make the deal go through. And basically, B. Shaw says, hey, wait a minute. Like, you need me to make this deal work? Workentine says, yes. And Brian says, okay, then I'm going to want $2 million. And then, and then Jason, in your reporting, you went to Mark Workentine who said they wanted a second, they wanted a second year on the contract. I'm going, I, and I told them I'm going to go get a nice tea. And when I come back, the, fa- the, the contract's going to be signed on the fax machine or I'm going to move on. And in fact, it was on the fax machine when he came back. And um, Brian Shaw had been in a bar shortly after that, or maybe before that. And, obviously before that, I guess when the Lakers signed, uh, hired Phil Jackson and he said somebody in the bar had said, Hey, the uh, Phil Jackson really likes big guards. You should play for the Lakers. And B Shaw kind of brushed him off as, as you do when, you know, some random drunk guy in the bar is, 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 is yelling at you. But he thought about it and said, you know, Phil Jackson does like big guards and think about it. Brian Shaw at this point, I want to say is 34 years old. His last stint in the NBA was five minutes with the Blazers and, you know, was an afterthought. And, Lo and behold, his agent calls, calls the Lakers up. They get him a tryout and um, he impresses them. He declines a training camp invite because he wanted a guaranteed contract. And then in the preseason, Kobe Bryant breaks his wrist and Phil Jackson calls him up and says, you've got eight weeks to make me cut somebody with a guaranteed contract. And B. Shaw comes in and signs and plays for the Lakers for eight weeks, plays well. 
they end up signing, uh, excuse me, they end up waving Sam Jacobson, who'd been a first round pick the year before. And Brian Shaw's, you know, second half of his career is written. I mean, again, a guy who was on the cusp of being out of the NBA, I think, ends up playing four more year for the, years for the Lakers, becomes a Phil Jackson coaching disciple and a head coach in the NBA. You know, I don't know if it, I don't know if all that happens for Brian Shaw if if Mark Warkentine doesn't call him up and offer him right. a you know a contract to you know get traded to Houston. Houston waived him because they had too many players and that freed him up to sign with the Lakers. And of course, he was a huge part of the game seven story, uh, you know, banked in a three pointer at the end of the third quarter, uh, and then made two more threes in the fourth quarter. And as Brian Grant, so perfectly put it, the Blazers paid Brian Shaw to beat us because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as Brian told you, he was double dipping. He was getting paid by the Blazers and getting paid by the Lakers. And then, uh, ends up beating the Blazers in, in the game seven. Yeah, it's so it pretty hard, interesting. It, it would be hard to find a more pivotal pivotal figure from that game. I mean, obviously not the not the most important player to that season or you know to the dynasty, but in that game he hits he banks in the three at the end of the fourth quarter that everyone kind of points to as the first the first little piece of the momentum shifting. Hits another three early in the fourth, and then hits the three that ties the game at seventy five to complete the comeback. So um, you know, kind of the the quarter of a lifetime for Brian Shaw. That th- that bank three was so important. I mean, it, and Jermaine O'Neal kind of spoke to this. The Staples Center was dead. People were leaving at that mm-hmm. point. I mean, Portland just kicked their ass in the third quarter. Uh, it was looking bleak for the Lakers. And, you know, no life, huge deficit on the heels of already losing two in a row, going to blow a three, one lead, just everything going against Lakers and Shaw hits this lucky shot. And it, it sparked uh, one of the greatest playoff comebacks. Yeah. And one that, uh, one that I think people remember um, for, um, you know, for so many reasons. I mean, you have maybe the most, uh, the most iconic um, connection between Kobe and Shaq. I mean, is there a more iconic moment um, between those two uh, than, than the lob? I would argue, no, obviously there was the celebration where Kobe gets up on Shaq's shoulders, but, yeah. but when you think so much about those two being diametrical forces pulling against each other and, and overcoming that, that conflict to, to win the three championships and to become this all-time great duo, that's often what you think of, but that lob ultimately is the, um, you know, is the one time that they really seemed to come together and be truly unified. And, and it's, it's just, it's kind of poetry in motion in that sense. And, um, and, you know, I think also, you know, one thing Rick Fox said, and, and I think this is implied in the comments I used from him in the story, but he spoke at length to me about hoping that as time goes on, that that becomes the lasting image of their relationship and that people think of that lob and, and, and their ability to, connect and find common ground rather than the conflict because, you know, he talked about, you know, comment conflict that is on anything where you have, you know, where you have big stars and you have egos and you have, and you have, you know, kind of dueling forces. But when, when the, the, the rubber met the road, when, when, when the game was on the line, they made the right play and the right play was often the great play. And in that case, it was the, you know, the, the winning play and the iconic play. It is interesting though, that the, the two sides, think of look at that play kind of differently because the um the Lakers side is like well that was just kind of the cherry on top the game was already decided 
Whereas the Blazers, I think, look at that more as the nail in the coffin and that they still really had a chance because even I think it was two possessions later for Portland, maybe it was the next possession. You have Steve Smith driving into the lane against, against Shaquille O'Neal and, um, you know, lots of contact right, right at the basket and no call. And, yeah. and Jason, I think the Blazers still look at that as a real pivotal moment that could have changed the game. And that was after the lob. Yeah. Well, after the lob, then uh, Rashid came down and hit a hits the really, three. Long yes. Three, yes. really long three, really long three. But then um, the Lakers make only one of two free throws. And so Steve Smith drives down the middle, gets planted by Shaq and you know, Steve Smith's a 90% free throw shooter. Mm-hmm. If he would have made those two free throws, it would have been a two point game with 26 seconds left. So, you know, a lot can happen there, particularly at the way that the Lakers were shooting free throws. People don't remember the, the Lakers were brutal down the stretch. I wish I had the stats in front of me, but I, I think Kobe missed two Ron Harper missed one. And ironically, Shaq was a great free throw shooter in that game uh, for him. I, I think he was, I don't know, six of 10 or six of 11, maybe, which is pretty good for him. Uh, because Hackashack was a huge storyline. Huge part of that series. In that series. Uh, but he really stepped up in game seven. But, anyways, the Lakers. He was eight for 12 from the line in game seven. Eight for 12. Yeah. Which is amazing for him. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyways, that, that was really a play that stuck with Mike Dunleavy. Uh, he said, that later that summer he was in uh, a meeting with that included league referees. And he brought up that Steve Smith play where no foul was called. And he said that nobody raised their hand and, you know, you, you could go to jail for what Shaq did to, to Steve Smith. Uh, so I mean, that, clearly that's, that that's, still sticks. That's the thing about this game and this story is it, it still just resonates so deeply with the people who were a part of it. And it, right. it, like we talked about the, the Witsit comment up top, but the fact that Mike Dunleavy is, is still, you know, carrying a grudge two decades later yes. for over a, over a no, no call, call yeah. in a four point game. It wasn't even like it was like at the buzzer. It, it, there's no guarantee that it would have changed the outcome of the game. But right. the fact that it just, it, that still is such a searing memory for him yeah. just speaks, I think speaks to the, um, the pain of that game. And I think too, probably like that play, once there was a no call on that, then the game was over. Yes. You know? Uh, so I think when, once that final nail goes in, it sticks with you probably a little bit more. Yeah. If that was in, if that was with seven minutes to go, maybe you don't feel it as much. Um, right. Most of our listeners are in and around Portland. What better way to promote your business than through our show? Our listeners are loyal and engaged just like you. So what better way to advertise than on our favorite podcast? To advertise on this very show, just go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away. So go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. But uh, Jason, what any other highlights from the reporting process for you? Um, you know, uh it doesn't necessarily um, relate in, in to this story, but in the course of reporting for this story, it kind of opened up a whole can of worms on, on what happened in the aftermath, because that was a big, that was something I really wanted to dive into was, was how this affected the Blazers. And so I really examined the, the trade for Jermaine O'Neal 
uh, to Indiana in the offseason for for Dale Davis and then Brian Grant leaving in free agency and the sign and deal trade that involved Sean Kemp. And those two moves really kind of torpedoed the Blazers, uh, not only for that next year when they kind of fell apart, but just financially, you know, Kemp's contract uh, and then Jermaine goes on to become a, a huge star in Indiana. That really crippled the Blazers moving forward. And I really got a lot of backstory from Dunleavy and Jermaine O'Neal and Bob Witsit uh, and Grant about what was going on behind the scenes, the promises that were made to, to Jermaine O'Neal, the, uh, the debate about whether they should sign Sean Kemp, all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've been covering this team for more than 20 years and I hadn't heard some of that stuff. Uh, and so that was really interesting to me. And I, I wrote a story that um, will come out this week uh, that I hope people enjoy. Well, and I, it's, it, you just talk about what it meant for, for the roster, but I mean, you have Sean Kemp come in and it's, it's not the same Sean Kemp and there's, you know, promises of minutes for Sean Kemp. Um, you have a locker room that is, probably pretty fragile and certainly volatile at that point. Bob Witz, it's tenure ends a few years later after not being able to get over the hump. Um, and then the, and then I know, we, I know you hate this term, Jason, but the, the so-called jailblazer era begins. Yeah. You have management hires that don't pan out. Um, it really takes, and, and listen, I mean, all things can get back to being um, stable. I would say maybe seven years after game seven, when did they draft Brandon Roy? 2006. So that's seven years later. You get Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, Greg Oden. Um, you know, think, they're, they're looking like a young power at that point before, again, fate intervenes. But um, it really threw them off course for the better part of a decade. Yeah, it did. I mean, and I think that's one of the you, people still talk about Jermaine O'Neal, like what could have been. That That is still the kind of the the benchmark <laughs> case of of people being afraid to trade young talent in Portland mm-hmm. because they don't want another Jermaine O'Neal where you, you trade a young guy and then he blossoms in another city. Um, but that was, uh, it, it was fascinating to, to hear the dynamics that went on behind the scenes uh, with Jermaine O'Neal. And again, going back to that delicate balance within an organization of having an owner, a GM, a coach and players all on the same page and all with the same agenda. And it it's rarely happens. Um, and it can really, it can really sink a season and, and sink uh, an era when they're not aligned. Yeah, well put. And I think, you know, I, again, just to put, to put a bow on it, that is kind of the opposite of what the, the, the Lakers got out of game seven. Right. They, they had the success to show for their trials over the course of that season. And, and they kept the and, core together. And they kept the core together. And, and by the way, that was not a, a core that was obvious to, to build with. I mean, you had a lot of veteran guys, a lot of aging players, Brian Shaw, like we've, we've talked at length about. Um, AC green retires after that season, John Sally retires after that season, but Robert Dory was not a favorite player of Phil Jackson early on. Um, Rick Fox does, you know, is, is he still there? If, if you lose that game, Ron Harper comes back for another year, yeah. Derek Fisher, um, you know, not a, not a Phil Jackson favorite early on, obviously again, like big guards Derek Derek doesn't quite, um, 
hit that benchmark. Um, but ultimately these are all people who come to define, you know, this era of, of Lakers success and, and truly a dynasty. And, you know, I know we think of the Lakers as being kind of the standard of the NBA and, and kind of the, the golden glamor franchise, but, um, but that is in part, but the, the, their, their success in the, in the 21st century helped reinforce that image that dates back to the eighties and showtime. And then, and then previously, I mean, you, that, that success kind of has helped calcify the way we we view the Lakers in the context of the NBA and their, and kind of their, their prestige um, position. So Bill, in yes, I want you to start preparing and start taking good notes because in 20 years, <laughs> We are going to do an oral history on when the eight seeded Blazers upended the number one seeded Los Angeles Lakers in the COVID NBA playoffs in 2020. I, I look for, I look forward to writing that oral history. I'm not going to be able to get anybody on the phone for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I will be doing it with oxygen and from my uh, deathbed. But uh, you'll be you'll be what 55. Uh, Not even. So yeah, that, that is a possibility. I think that would be, if it happens, uh, you know, with the NBA coming back and Portland does get that eight seed, that would be uh, pretty fascinating to see that matchup. Well, we haven't seen the Blazers and Lakers in the playoffs since um, what? Oh, one, the first round was that the, one. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's been a long time. And I, I, I think people remember, but it's been a long time uh, since that rivalry uh, was at its peak. And you- know, obviously there were a couple of Western conference showdowns. Go ahead. Do you think there's any fear in the Lakers about, uh, with the Blazers? I mean, the last time they, they played was on Kobe's night and the Blazers mm-hmm. beat the Lakers in Staples Center. Do you, yeah. do you think the Lakers fear the Blazers? I think, I think that the Lakers would vastly prefer to play anyone other than the Blazers. I think the Blazers are the most, are the scariest matchup. I think the fact that Zach Collins and, and Nurkic uh, would presumably be back, right. Yeah, um, definitely is, is a wrinkle that they would have a very difficult time preparing for. Cause you don't know what that will look like. Um, Dame is by far um, imposing individual player they would encounter. Um, I don't know that they fear the Blazers beating them. Although I think they, I think they, they should, I think that you should live with that fear um, that there is a big difference between facing a plucky Memphis team in the first round and being, and being done with that in four games and potentially right. being take, taken to six or seven by a veteran tough minded um, Blazers. Playoff team. Hardened. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. a team that went to the conference finals last year, you know, won a game seven on the road in Denver. I mean, those are, those are characteristics that a team that has been together, by the way, this Lakers team, you know, has been through a lot this year has, has, um, has, has had a, a hard road to get to this point. And, you know, when you think about what the Lakers have been through, it's not playoff experience, but it's experience yeah. nonetheless with their experiences in China, um, being a team together during, um, Kobe. the aftermath of Kobe's death. Yeah. And then, and then also, you know, still fighting for that first seed and, and, you know, kind of through all that. Um, I think this is a, a hardened Lakers team, but the last thing you want to encounter is a, you know, a conference finals level opponent in the first round. I mean, that That'd is be just, a tough first round draw. It's, and it just, it just makes it, you know, if you, if you, if you subscribe to the idea that you only have, so much energy for an entire playoffs, right? You want to expend a certain amount of it in the first round, a certain amount right. of it in the, in the second and third round, and then right. have enough in the finals. And, and how much of it are you going to have to use just to get out of the first round against Portland? I think that's a, I think that is a nightmare scenario for the, for the Lakers. Yeah. 
But Blazers still have some work to do before that becomes a reality. But uh, that'll be an interesting little side story, I think, if it does happen. Absolutely. Okay, Jason. Well, I um, love talking about this. I really enjoyed reporting the story with you. Um, I hope people enjoy it. I hope Blazers fans can um, can 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 make their way to it. Um, I don't think it is as, is as painful of a read for Blazers fans as you might uh, anticipate. And yeah. uh, for Lakers fans, I think it's a, a, a rewarding trip down memory lane. So I hope people read the story. Um, um, certainly appreciate the work you put into it, Jason. It was, a, it was, it was fun and fulfilling for me on a very, on a personal level. And uh, I do hope we can do it again. Yeah. It was really fun working on it with you, Bill. Thank you all for listening. Please support The Athletic. Subscribe uh, to The Athletic and our podcast. And we look forward to talking to you next time. This has been Basketball Reasons, part of the Forum Club. And Jason is coming to us from the Rose Garden. Thanks for listening. Both things play hard. Both things play hard. God bless and good night.